Genesis 9, 1 through 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is set in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Uh, good morning. It's uh, great to be here and sharing the word with you all this morning. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I got into a little bit of a fender bender. I got rear-ended. Uh, not the happiest day of my life, but you know, I knew what to do. I've been in an accident before where I actually rear-ended me and took off. So now I'm, I've been trained to just go and take as many pictures as I can of my car, their car, their license, their insurance, anything I could. And it was obvious that the person that hit me thought it was a, a bit excessive, but I, I, I needed something to hold on to, right? You know, I needed something to, to cling to, to make me feel better about this situation. My car wasn't drivable, the axles bent in. Here I'm in the middle of the road saying, what do I do? I need something to feel like I'm doing something, like I feel safe, like everything is going to be okay. So I took pictures. Uh, okay, thank you. <laughs> I feel like we, we do this often in life, not just in car accidents, but in times of uncertainty, we often want to cling to something tangible to remind us of our assurance of that we'll be okay. What is it that we cling to in our Christian walk, in our faith uh, to uh, our Lord Jesus Christ? As we exist in this deeply broken world and experience how fallen this age is, where do we cling to for assurance of our own salvation? What do we look to and what do we cling to? It's my hope this morning that through our text in Genesis 9, we're going to see that God has actually committed himself to his people by way of never-ending covenant and is himself the guarantee of our salvation as we see in Christ Jesus. And so he has committed himself to us 
through covenant, and is himself, through Christ, the guarantee of our salvation. So that's what I hope that we're going to see today in Genesis chapter 9. And uh, following chapter 8, we saw that after uh, Noah and his family and all the animals have uh, departed uh, the ark, Noah, he builds an altar to the Lord and offers sacrifice. God then addresses Noah and his sons in chapter 9 by saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. And uh, if you were here last week and remember from John's sermon, uh, we saw that in chapter 8 and even this whole uh, flood narrative, there's tons of connections to the creation account in Genesis 1. And so, as we jump right into chapter 9 here and we start with this, this language, be fruitful and multiply, we say, oh my goodness, it's, it's almost like the same thing that was uh, blessed to Adam in the garden, right? Even all the components are there, right? This, this command to be fruitful, uh, be multiply, uh, the man's relationship to the rest of creation, and even uh, what they were to eat for food, right? We see this in Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Okay. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, over every living thing that moves on the earth, relationship to the animals, right? And behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. Every tree with seed is fruit you shall have for food. And so we see that there's tons of similarities, right, between chapter 9 and chapter 1. And in this way, we actually see that Uh, there's a beautiful, deep continuity in what God has planned for his people. Uh, For from the time of the garden, we see that it was always his intention that the creation would act as his kingdom, that he would actually establish his kingdom in creation, filled, as we saw uh, in previous weeks, with his image bearers that would testify to God's glory, his majesty, and his holiness as we would work the garden and worship him and experience this intimate relationship with our creator, God. And as uh, image bearers, we would uh, actually be an extension of his authority in creation, caring for the animals and having a special relationship with not just people, but with all of creation, exercising it with all goodness and love. And so that was God's plan for us from the very beginning, from the, from the time of the garden, to move us along in such a way that he might gather his people to himself, enter a relationship with them, enter a deeper relationship with them, and, and actually progress us along to a place where we're just enjoying this heightened worship and this union with our God. While things seem the same, uh, a closer look at verses 2 and 3 actually show that Things are not the same as they were in the garden, right? Let's, let's look at how God is describing man's relationship to the animals. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground into your hand. They are all delivered, right? It's a, it's a bit of a stronger language we see here compared to uh, have dominion and subdue it, right? Uh, so we went from subdue and have dominion over all the animals to the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every creature that isn't a human. 
Now, I know in uh, modern context, when we hear these words subdue and dominion, it doesn't always have the most positive meanings, but there's definitely a difference in the language in Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. Let me give you an example, right? Let me, let's, uh, let's say, uh, I don't know, someone with a child here asked me to babysit, and I say, yeah, sure, I'd love to babysit. They come and babysit, and they say, okay, well, uh, you know, my, my kid knows that uh, you're the boss. You're in charge, right, for, for these two hours. Uh, you know, they're going to do everything you say. They know what time they're going to eat dinner. They know what time they're going to go to bed. Uh, they know that we're friends, so they're going to respect you. They know our relationship, and they're going to honor you in that way. I say, okay, great. It's going to be a great couple hours. It would be completely different if I came and you told me, say, hey, thanks for coming. I just want to let you know uh, my son is completely terrified of you, and he is dreading this evening. He's going to do everything you say, but I just, i got to be honest, he, he doesn't really like it that much, man. I'm sorry. Uh, we'll be back in two hours. Right? It's the same job. Very different circumstances, right? Fear and dread. And so here we see that although there is still a relationship with creation, something has changed, right? Man did have authority over all creation in the garden, and yet there's now this fear, and dread that animals actually experience when they see us, right? Maybe not like Philly pigeons, right? They have no fear. <laughs> step on their necks, they won't fly away. But, you know, for, for every other place in the United States that's not a major city, right? Fear and dread. These animals know. They will avoid you. They will run away, right? They will uh, look at you from you know, behind a bush and say, okay, not, not yet. I'm going to wait till it comes, uh, go, goes away before I go out and eat that garbage or whatever it is that... Animals, you could tell I'm from the city also. So we can see here that the year in the ark spent, uh, you know, day after day, bonding, making memories, right? It didn't, didn't change anything. God tells them that, yeah, these animals, they're, they're not your friends. They, they really don't like you. They're, there's fear and dread, and they actually might kill you. And then we get some more odd instruction in verse 4, right? Uh, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And, and so this is not just a comment on, um, I don't know, like the, the biblical way to cook a steak or anything like that. But I think what the Lord is doing here is actually establishing the dignity between the relationship between us as people and animals, to preserve the dignity of the animal, that we would not actually devour animals like the animals devour one another, but in a sense, creating certain boundaries to establish the difference between us and the animals, and yet, in the context of this broken relationship, uh, showing that actually, no, you still ought to respect and care for creation. And so, while things are the same, things aren't all the same. We see how things have changed in a little more drastic ways as we continue on. We see that not only the relationship between man and animals has been negatively affected by the fall, but also man's relationship to one another. We see this in verse 6 with the institution of the death penalty, right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Right here, God actually has to spell out the consequences of murder because murder's a thing. It wasn't a thing in the garden, but yet here God is spelling out, saying if you kill someone, you're also going to die because every man is made in the image of God. And this is clear from our passage last week where the Lord confesses 
The intention of man's heart is evil from its youth. And so before the flood in chapter 6, we remember that the earth was corrupt in God's sight, right? The earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their ways. And after the flood, sadly, we see not much has changed. Kind of odd, right? And yet, recognizing the sinful effects, the, 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 the effects that sin had in this world, affecting all creation, God, in our passage, establishes this covenant with Noah and his family and offers them hope. Notice the covenant is not only made with Noah and his sons, but according to verse 10, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast that is with you, as many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. And this affirms that what God has in mind is not just his restoration, his restoring our relationship with him, but restoring all of creation. The covenant is not just with man. It's with his entire creation that he might establish that kingdom here on earth. And the covenant that God makes with all creation is that he would never again cut off all flesh by the waters of a flood. Never again would there be a flood to destroy the earth, right? The promise was that creation would never again experience a flood like Noah did. And then, Noah, and then the Lord actually gives him a sign of this covenant and says, here, I've set my bow in the clouds as a sign so that when I see it, I will remember my covenant with you. Uh, the symbolism of the bow, it's very simple. Uh, if you think about a hunter's bow, uh, when it's aimed at something, uh, kind of looks like a C, right? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I've never shot an arrow, but maybe someone here has. But, you know, you, you look at the thing of cartoons or whatever. It's, it's in that C shape, right? It's, it's in that position. And when it's at its resting position over the hunter's shoulder, it's slung upwards, pointed to the sky. And the very same way, the Lord is demonstrating that his, his bow, a sign of destruction, war, and judgment, is now at rest for the time being that he would never wipe away all of creation through a flood. Now, as we've quickly gone through these 17 verses, uh, it's, it's a little unsatisfying, right? You think about it, right? You have this great buildup, right? Like there's all this evil multiplying on the face of the world. Wickedness is great, all right, in people, right? God then, you know, uh, sees Noah. He saves Noah and his family and a remnant of all creation through this flood. He wipes away all these wicked people, right? Noah emerges from this ark. It's like this recreation story, this new beginning, right? Starts off great, sets up this altar and worships him. Only to see that this new beginning isn't what we would expect or even what we would hope. The balance of the created order is completely off and to the point where one of the first things the Lord says to the people is stop killing people, okay? You know, it's, it's the weird thing to say right when they come off the ark. They say, hey, stop it, okay? You know, I know you're going to do it again, so just stop it. Even later in the chapter, well, we'll see maybe next week, uh, Noah actually, you know, has a good time, gets gets drunk a little bit and passes out naked, right? I mean, it's like right after, in the same chapter, all this is happening. So we see that this new beginning isn't all that we would expect. And then we see this covenant and this promise that Lord would never again 
wipe away all flesh? But what if evil multiplies again? It's so clear that evil still persists in the world. It's assumed. Our relationship with animals isn't right. Our relationship with one another isn't right. What then, Lord? And this way, it might seem to us a bit unsatisfying. And as we think about covenants, and I know we've talked about them a lot in these past few sermons, um, when we think about them, it's also helpful to think that covenants are a way of God expressing his plan of salvation to his people. It's in very simple terms his way of explaining how he's going to save us and what he's going to do. And although in chapter 9 here is the very you know, first instance of like explicit covenant being established with Noah, of course mentioned earlier in, the, in Noah's account, we actually see the first covenant in Genesis chapter 3 where God actually holds court with all the sinners, man, woman, and the serpent who tempted them. And as he holds court with them, he does something very interesting. Instead of pronouncing judgment and death, which they deserved, he promises them that one day he would raise up a seed from the woman that would crush the enemy, that would make right all things that are wrong in this world. Every broken relationship, everything that is wrong in this world order, this Savior would bring it. This Savior would restore all things to its rightful place. And from this covenant, the Lord expresses covenant after covenant with Noah, with Abraham, with David. And although they are, they look different, they're not. As God reiterates this covenant over and over again, the core remains the same, and yet he takes each and every opportunity to actually expand and explain and give further insight as to what he is doing in this world. And so as we look at this Noahic covenant, this covenant with Noah, and we look back from this point in history, and even uh, looking at the New Testament, we can actually understand how God's covenant with Noah actually expands God's promise to save all people in Genesis 3. And this is actually explained pretty well uh, in 2 Peter 3, right, where Peter actually has to deal with uh, people in his times. They looked around at the world and saw the state of things were going. They looked at their watches and looked at the calendar and said, yeah, yeah, Christ isn't coming again. <laughs> that day of judgment, it is not coming. And in response, Peter actually uses the flood narrative as an example, saying the same word that was used to flood the world, to wipe out every living thing, by that same word, God is actually storing up fire in heaven. He is patient. And that covenant was established not because he's lazy, not because he wants to waste time, but because he's patient and he loves his people so much that he is actually delaying that judgment in order that people would come and confess that Christ is Lord, that they would come and confess their sins and be a part of his church and his people. So when we look at this covenant in, in Genesis chapter 9, it's not that odd. Looking back from 2 Peter chapter 3 and even from our point in history, we actually are better able to understand these confusing bits in Genesis 9. It's not as though, like I said, God has made this covenant 
and is now just holding back because he said, I'm tired of it. I don't want to do it again. It was way too much work the first time. No. Instead, he has committed himself to be patient. And many people would come and repent and confess Christ as Lord. And so as Noah and his family and generations after them would look at this sign, this rainbow in the sky, it was a sign of God's patience, his love, and his plan for his people. That they would actually look at this sign and look ahead to the day when God would fully establish his kingdom here on earth through that promised seed, a kingdom where evil, sadness, and injustice would be no more. And recognizing God's patience and forbearance with evil in the world, they longed for that day. And in this way, the covenant made with Noah was God's pledge. He said, I'm going to preserve this world in order that Christ might come and that he might save my people. During this Advent season, we celebrate the coming of Christ, but we also spend time reflecting on what does it mean for us to long for that return of Jesus? What a perfect passage for this season. I didn't think so when I was preparing this sermon, but by the end of it, I just, what a beautiful passage to reflect on what it means to look ahead and long Although we might long differently than Noah and his family and generations afterwards, we find ourselves in the same covenant of grace that Noah found himself in. God committing to save, himself, uh, God committing to save Noah and his family. That covenant, we're all under that covenant through Jesus Christ today. For those of us that have confessed Christ as Lord, have recognized our need for a Savior, we all find ourselves under this covenant of God's grace to us that has found its fulfillment in Christ. That promised seed, Jesus is the one, the promised one who would come to make all things right again. And in this way, for Noah and for us, Although we exist in different times in history, the object of our faith is the same. Who we long for, what we long for is the same. And as Noah would gaze upon the sign of the covenant and long for the coming of the Savior today, we long for his return. A day when he would fully establish that kingdom here on earth. A day where we don't even have to talk about the death penalty because death is no more. Murder will not exist a day when all things are made right. Not just our relationship with the Lord, but all of our relationships with our family members, with friends that we've lost, to just people that we just don't get along with. Sadly, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the day that I long for. That's the kingdom that I long for. The place that we as Christians belong. And for us this morning, while we don't have the sign as a rainbow for the covenant that we find ourselves in, we have Christ. Christ has come. We say that every Sunday before we take communion. And even through communion, and even as we witnessed last week with our brother's baptism, that sign, we look to these things, and then we don't worship them in and of themselves, but we worship what they point to. That through baptism, we recognize that Christ went under those waters for us. 
those judgment waters that we deserved in order that we might have life. As we participate in the Lord's Supper, we recognize that Christ's body was broken for us and that we participate in that as we partake in that meal. As we look at this covenant made with Noah and look and consider our own situation, we also should long for our true home. We also should reflect and long what it means to long for a kingdom that we see at the end of Revelation where there are no more tears. Sadness is not a thing. As many of you know, I uh, spent some time in Korea uh, last month, uh, you know, end of October, beginning of November. And uh, it was the second time I was there as an adult. The first time I went, I was, uh, it was 2017, uh, and I hadn't been there since I was about eight. Um, and I didn't realize it then, but I was really excited to go. Um, I can explain it now that I thought about it a little more. I couldn't explain it before, but in my mind, I said, it's going to be a country of me. <laughs> I don't know if you couldn't tell. I'm, I'm not white, right? I'm, I'm Korean, right? So I said, yeah, this is going to be sweet, right? I mean, Koreans are going to be driving buses and, you know, working at the banks and, it's going to be great, right? Everyone's going to be a Korean, right? I'm, I'm going to fit in, and it's going to be awesome. And as soon as I land, it was abundantly clear that I did not belong. <laughs> from the way that I dressed, from the way that my hair looked, from the way that I talked. Even I'm like a consider, I think, like an XL in Korea, so size-wise. It's just very clear that I, I didn't belong. And even, uh, even uh, this past trip, you know, my Korean, I, I've, I've nailed down a couple of phrases where I, I feel like I can get away with, you know, people like, oh, maybe, maybe he's from Korea, maybe he knows his stuff. You know, even with those phrases, they take one look at me, and I'd ask in Korean, where's the bathroom? And they say, it's in the back, sir, in perfect English. And I said, all right, well, I was trying to talk to you in Korean, but okay, I, I see what you did there. And I got sad. And I didn't know why I was sad, but I was sad. And uh, the reason why I was sad is because I came to this realization that as a minority, I thought I would experience home in my mother country. That was not the case. And sadly, at times, even though this is my country, my passport is blue. I grew up here number of different states, and think about how sometimes my English gets complimented time to time, how I get mistaken for some random Asian coworker that they met at the party one time in the street. And there are times that in my own country, I don't feel like I have a place. And I don't mean to share this like bum everyone out, right? Like it's not, I'm not trying to make everyone sad, but I'm just trying to share that my experience is one that we should all feel as we live in this broken world, as we think about the gospel, Look to the signs that Christ has given to us. My experience as a minority in the States should not be the experience of just minorities. It should be the experience of Christians. There shouldn't be a day that goes by where we don't look out at our block and say, this world isn't right. There's something wrong here. This is not how things should be. Much like in Noah's time, evil continues to persist. It is clear in the city of Philadelphia. We see this even in our own blocks. As our city continues to combat gun violence, this drug epidemic, horrors and evils that some places in this country can't even dream of. We don't belong here. And this isn't how things should be. 
As we spend time in Genesis chapter 9, I think a clear application, especially during this Advent season, is do we long for where we truly belong? Do we long for that? Does that change the way that you consider your life here in this broken world? And yes, we're still called to be good stewards of this world, right? We don't say, oh, to heck with this place, it's evil, it's broken, whatever. No, we see in this covenant with Noah and in the, those first few verses that no, we're still called to care and, and steward it as God's vice regents, as an extension of his authority. And yet, as we exist here, do you know where you belong? Does our lives reflect people who are simply passing through en route to our final destination? Or does it mirror the values of this world? These are hard questions. I don't think any one of us here can say, yes, that's me. I wholly know where I belong, not in this world, but to a heavenly kingdom that will never come to an end. My life and values are shaped by the gospel, and I live and make all my decisions accordingly. I know I can't say that. If you were to be honest, more often than not, we forget where our true home is. We seldom long for that day when Christ will return, despite the brokenness that we experience. But we praise God. We give thanks to God that our salvation is not contingent on our best efforts to long for our home, to realign our values with Christ. Instead, we are wholly dependent on God's grace towards us. And that's why it's called covenant of grace. Looking back at the passage, look exactly how God is describing this covenant. Chapter, uh, uh, verse 8, I will establish my covenant with you. Verse 11, my covenant with you. It's his covenant. We have no part in it. It's so clear. We actually mix the covenant with animals. They didn't have any say in it. He didn't say, is this cool? Are we cool? This is okay? No, none of that. This is his covenant. And from time and time again, from the time of the garden in chapter 3, we see that God has committed himself to us. And that will never change, brothers and sisters in Christ. What a beautiful thing that is, that it's his covenant that he offers to us, that he draws us to him. And if you're not a Christian this morning and never have professed Christ as Lord, that covenant is for you too. I would love to talk to you about it. Any leader here would love to talk to you about how this covenant is for you and what God has accomplished for us through Christ. As I conclude my time uh, this morning, I just want us to really reflect on that idea of God's covenant for us and how we've really done nothing to deserve it, to earn it, or to even be a part of it. And yet God, out of his love for us, sent Christ at the fullness of time in order that we might be saved from all the brokenness and all the evil of this world. And that's a savior that we cling to this morning until he returns. Much like Noah, as we will experience the brokenness of this world, he's not left us alone. He has given us Christ. And even as we remind ourselves time and time again, Sunday after Sunday, with this sign, we rejoice that Christ has come.
And we long for that day when you'll return. Amen.